We are in our second week in a new teaching series titled Exiles through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And so just a little bit of background, if you weren't here last week, Peter was an apostle. That is one of the 12 men who walked most closely with Jesus, being directly discipled by Jesus during his earthly ministry. And, you know, after Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension, this group of men, the apostles, became what's referred to as the apostolic witness. And when they, uh, so when they wrote letters to the churches, those letters became de facto authoritative, right? Because they were directly inspired by the Holy Spirit for the sake of uh, not only the maturation of the first century churches, but for all matters pertaining to gospel living until Christ returns, right? So at Mosaic, that's why we preach through books of the Bible, and I don't just get up here and give you, you know, practical tips for an easier life or, or something, um, because <laughs> there's other churches in town that do that. I can tell you a list if you want. But anyway, um, yeah, you don't need to hear me get up here and just give you a bunch of tadisms for half an hour. Like, hopefully, you know, you need to hear from the Lord. And so the way that he says that we can hear from him is through his divinely inspired, inerrant, all-sufficient word, the Bible, okay? And so if you're just now tuning in, so Peter's, uh, he's writing this letter to a string of churches in the first century uh, Asia Minor, and he's writing about what, you know, generally speaking, Christians are still trying to figure out today how to live confidently as spiritual exiles or sojourners who are passing through a sin-filled world that is increasingly proving to not be our home, right? And more specifically, how to be obedient to the Lord Jesus as we await his return in this place where the things that we believe, they, they run contrary to the culture that we're in in just so many fundamental ways. I can't promise you that this is going to be an easy read. Uh, in fact, you better just prepare yourself for it to not be. Uh, but I can promise you that it's, it's going to be good for us. It's going to be good for us. It's going to cause us to think carefully about what we believe as Christians and how our lives should look as Christians in light of the gospel. Okay, so with that, uh, let's read our text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So it's uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're picking it back up in verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another day of life, physical life and health, sure, but more importantly, spiritual life that we have received by the grace of your son, Jesus, in the gospel. And now, God, as I give it my best shot to preach that gospel well to these men and women who are here this morning through 1 Peter, would you help me? God, there's so much going on in all of our lives, I know, but I I know that some of us here are probably feeling particularly bogged down and hoping to hear some answer this morning that will help us get through this season we are in. And so I pray that what will be evident by the time that I'm done is that the answer we need, God, is the gospel. It's Jesus. We need him and what only he can offer to us if we will simply place our faith in him. The grace, peace, joy, comfort, strength, and fulfillment that we need and so desire can only come from him. Lord, would that those who need to believe that today would believe it. And would those who believe it commit themselves to increasingly live like it, whatever your word and your spirit leads us to realize that means for us. God, you have not saved us to go on an eternal Disney cruise when we die. You've saved us to love, worship, and obey Jesus as we were created to. I pray that this sermon lends itself to that end. While it will largely not be a pragmatic message, may it be greatly influential in all of the practical aspects of our lives. Pray all this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Let's get right to it. We've got a lot to cover. Um, There are essentially three movements to this text, and so each point that I'll try to make today will correspond to those respective movements. And I think you'll see that they're all very clearly linked. They, they progress one into the next, okay? So Peter starts out the actual content of his letter with a call to joy-filled amazement, right? In 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why? He says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, normally when we think of that word bless, 
or blessing, we're talking about what God does for us, right? That he bestows all forms of grace upon us. He, he showers undeserved good into our lives as our heavenly father. But when that term is used the other way around from us to God, since we're not able to give God anything good that's not already his in the first place, you do know that, right? Okay. <laughs> when we bless God, it means to exalt him, to make much of, to praise him, to be moved with joy for all he has done for us and to express that joy back to him in ways that are appropriate, okay? And so Peter instructs these churches to praise God with joyful amazement, and then he gives them the pinnacle motivation, if you will, the, the reasoning why. He says, because of the gospel, because of the gospel, because every single one of us was born lost in the rebellion of our own sin, trying to figure out what life was all about and to gratify ourselves apart from the one who gave us life and who created every form of gratifying fulfillment in the first place. And even though we were spiritually dead and adrift in a dark and depressing sea of our own brokenness, blind to the goodness of the God who made us, and we were on track to spend eternity apart from him, seeing our desperate need, God sacrificially sent his own son, Jesus, to revive us, to rescue us, to redeem us, and to reconcile us back into right relationship with himself. You see, Jesus came to give us the gift of restored life with God forever. The way he did it was by first coming to earth and taking on human flesh in order to live the life we were created to live, to live it for us, because in our sinfulness, we are prevented from being able to do that on our own. And then because of our sin, our sin that had consequences, he not only lived for us, but he died for us and became the perfectly atoning sacrifice to pay for all of our sin on the cross. And finally, as our passage references, he was resurrected from the dead. He, he didn't just lay his life down. He triumphantly took it back up again in order to defeat death itself, which apart from him would have been our ultimate spiritual fate. This is the good news of the gospel. This is it. This is God's great mercy. That's what that means in that text that Peter says. It's an abbreviation for the gospel. That's what he's referring to. And so uh, the first point we should take from verses 3 through 5 is that it is critically important that Christians are joyfully amazed by the reality that God has done two things for us. He has made us unassailably alive in Christ, and he's reserved for us a share of his eternal kingdom. Let's talk specifically about each of those things accomplished for us in the gospel. First, as Christians, 
We should be joyfully amazed that God has made us alive in Christ. That God has made us alive in Christ. Just a bit about my life. I was not raised in a Christian household for the majority of my childhood. And in my late teens and early 20s, I I ran an interesting scene in Jacksonville where I'm from. That's why I have several tattoos and you know, these, these weird holes in my ears. If you've ever wondered, uh, those are there. Maybe you didn't want to ask me. It's like rude. It's okay. Um, they're there because they used to be stretched out as big as quarters. You could stick your finger through them, okay? Because I was in what I would loosely define as an alternative rock band, music that would upset your grandmother. And, and um, <laughs> that was kind of the style, so to speak, you know? But Um, Anyway, I didn't just conform to the style of appearance, I conformed to the lifestyle, often out late at night at shows and bars and whatnot. And so I had my fair share of times driving home in the wee hours of the morning, tired and just ready to collapse into the bed. And one time I remember very distinctly driving home and pulling my truck up to the driveway and realizing in a moment oh my gosh, I'm home, but I don't remember the drive. Like, was I even awake for it? Because I do not recall how I just got here. Anyone else ever have that experience? Yeah, I thought so. Kind of scares you awake, doesn't it? Like, Makes you profoundly thankful to just be alive in that moment, right? Church, this is what it should feel like to consider that God has caused us to be born again. My wife and I have four kids, and um, every time one of them was born, my mind was absolutely blown. I almost passed out the first time, Um, but I got better along the way, so, but... But birth is incredible, the beauty of how God designed for us to reproduce new life. And, you know, like, they all came out pretty much the same, you know, my kids. Seven to eight-pound bundles of cuteness, but it's just so crazy, you know. Like, they all turned into little people, you know, like, with their own unique personalities and special differences. It's just wild, right? Now, this is going to take an interesting turn. Can you imagine what it must be like to be born just go with it, okay? <laughs> None of us remembers it firsthand. But it's got to be pretty shocking for a baby, wouldn't you think? What do you think they would say if they could describe it to us? Interesting. Yeah, bright. Well, everything was dark. And I was just kind of floating along, not even sure what I was even doing, really. Uh, And then all of a sudden, something I had just never experienced before started to happen to me. It was kind of uncomfortable, really shook me up. Someone's remembering, right? (laughs) (laughs) I cried a lot, but then I realized I... I had eyes. I could see with them. It wasn't dark anymore. I was seeing all kinds of amazing things that I had just never seen before. But the best part was I I met these huge people. 
called mom, dad, and they just loved me. They just loved me. Mom would feed me and nurture me, and dad would hold me and talk to me and rock me, comfort me. Probably something like that, right? I don't know. Do you see that this is why Christian conversion is referred to in the Bible as being born again? (laughs) It's because there's nothing in all creation that describes it better. We were spiritually dead, that is, unaware of our state before God. And then all of a sudden, upon hearing the gospel, something happened to us. We passed through the birth canal of the resurrection of Christ, and we emerged into this world of living hope. (laughs) We were blind, but now by God's grace, we can see. We can see Jesus and his redeeming love as our Savior and our, our Lord, and everywhere we look and In the world, we we see God's goodness and the glory of his creation. And we can see because we're alive. (laughs) And we're alive because God caused us to be born again. In John chapter 1, speaking about Jesus, John says this. He says, but to all who did receive him, Jesus who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I love the way John articulates it here because he puts our, he puts our belief in the gospel first. Right? He puts our belief first because <clears throat> from our perspective, that's what happens first. Right? That's what happens first. Babies don't know they're about to be born. It just happens to them. But the first thing they do on their own is they, they nurse. They, they choose to trust their mother who's feeding them. Or they rest. So they close their eyes and go to sleep in the comfort of their father's arms. That's how it goes for us too. When God causes us to be born again, he's the initiator. He, by his gracious will, spiritually births us, and then we immediately place our faith in him. We begin trusting him as his children. But when we're born again, you know, this is also, our text says, not only are we made alive in Christ, but we're made unassailably alive, Sorry to use that big word. I'd try to explain it here. That it, like our aliveness is not open to attack or dispute. Right? It's been done by God who can undo it. It's been done by God, and thus our status as his children is irreversible. It's irrevocable. In John chapter 10. Jesus himself, using a shepherding analogy, he says this of our our new life in him. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life 
and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He goes on to say, that couldn't get stronger. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. I mentioned this unassailable peace because Peter says in verse 5 that as a consequence of our new birth, God is now powerfully guarding us through faith for our final salvation at the return of Christ. You can see, that, that's, that's what our living hope is. That's what it is. Maybe you're thinking, okay, Tad, that all sounds really nice, born again to a living hope and all, but hope for what? Hope for what? Well, in verse 4, Peter clarifies that. Hope for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's a pretty great-sounding inheritance, isn't it? With all the inflation right now, sorry for saying that word, uh, I keep... (laughs) I keep seeing ads, you know, for tax-sheltered IRAs backed by gold and silver. Maybe that's a good idea. But this is a better one. This is a better one. Precious metals may seem like a smart investment for security in this life, but don't kid yourself, gold can be devalued or stolen by an unknown future. And this life will end. Not so with the living hope of our inheritance in Christ. It's as secure as secure can get because it's locked up where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal in heaven, right? And so our joyful amazement with God is that he has made us alive in Christ, but also that he has reserved for us a share of his eternal kingdom. Peter says in his second letter, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the inheritance that he's referring to in his first letter. When Christ died, make sure we are clear here. When Christ died, he took the penalty for our sin And he credited his righteousness to our account. And so, let me just make sure. In that transaction, those who trust him become not only children of God, but also the rightful heirs of his eternal kingdom. Do you know that? (laughs) That's amazing. And when Christ returns to make all things new, as he has promised... He will take his place as the true king of all creation, and he will finish what he came to do once and for all, vanquishing the power and presence of sin and death and wiping away their consequences, sickness, pain, and tears forevermore. And so Peter says to all who are alive because they've been born again to a living hope in this You rejoice. Amen? Amen. We should. (laughs) We should. But then he takes a turn. And he actually foreshadowed this turn in verse 5 when he told us that we're being guarded, right? He said we're being guarded 
if you look back at the text, we're being guarded by God's power, through faith, for salvation. The only thing he doesn't tell us is what we're being guarded from, right? It'd be logical to assume there's something there. That's what he gets into in this second movement of the passage, if you will. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. So in these verses, we're, we're reminded again of the occasion for the writing of this letter. Spiritual exile, right? Spiritual exile. The cultural context of the first century these churches found themselves in was one that was idolatrous through and through, and that was increasingly hostile towards Christians. Sound familiar? Okay. Not to mention, something I think we don't often consider is the level of comfort we experience today, not only because of the country we live in, but the century we live in, right? The first century church did not have things, even like over-the-counter medicines that we have. And so sickness and death were so much more prevalent then in ways that we can't quite wrap our minds around now. And so it seems clear, Peter is saying that what Christians are in need of being guarded from, in a word, is suffering. Suffering. You know, every now and then I see news articles about scientists who are trying to reverse the aging process, who are talking about eventually being able to prolong human lifespans and even put an end to death by the means of scientific advancement. But the reality that I think we all instinctively know at this point is that difficulty will eventually come for us if it hasn't already. And death will eventually come knocking at our own door. Science won't stop it. A healthy lifestyle won't stop it. Making more money and living in a nice neighborhood won't stop it. No matter what you throw at it, grief, as Peter says, cannot be eradicated from a broken world. Whatever form it may take, it's, it's inevitable. But there's a peculiar little phrase that Peter throws into that first part of verse 6. I wonder if you caught it. He doesn't just say, though for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. He says, though for a little while, what? If necessary. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And this little phrase is the, the kind of the prelude to what I think Peter is saying is the why behind all Christian suffering. Perhaps it's first good to remind ourselves that as Christians, we believe there is a why behind it all. Good to remember. Other worldviews try to address this, but in my opinion, they fall terribly short. Those who believe in karma say, you know, it's all about fairness in the universe. Something bad's happening to you. You did something to deserve it, man. Really comforting, huh? Comforting stuff from karma. Not. Uh, the fatalist says, because of the inevitability of suffering, see, get over it. Get over it. 
It's just your predetermined lot in life. Also not a super comforting worldview. Um, Buddhism also says all of life is really suffering. So just don't focus on it. Okay, all right. Um, they're trying, I mean, they're trying. But Western secularism, that's our culture, it's largely atheistic. And thus would say that suffering's just meaningless, along with all of history that came from a big, random, totally impersonal bang, whatever that is. <laughs> like, law of thermodynamics, like, avoiding bang, right? Okay, sorry. But I love what Tim Keller says. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, Christianity teaches that contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. It is, isn't it? Suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. It really happens. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contrary to secularism, suffering is meaningful. It's meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Peter, it seems, would agree with this from these verses. I I believe that we can deduce that the ultimate why of all Christian suffering is the display of of genuine faith that never ceases to rejoice in light of the worthiness and the sufficiency of Christ. That's the why. Do you see his logic? If you look at the, you have to look at the text, but I hope you see his logic. The the phrase, if necessary, in verse 6, which denotes that there is meaning behind the trials and the difficulties that we face. That, if necessary, it's attached to another two-word phrase in verse 7. So that, right? So that. And then he tells us why suffering's necessary. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The redemptive purpose of suffering in the Christian life is that, well, it's a test. It's a test. Now, some of you, I just stressed some of you out. (laughs) You hate taking tests. But, you know, I, I always found, maybe you did too, I always found that in school there were two kinds of teachers, right? It's kind of the, I don't know, not a better way to say it than this, but kind of the arrogant kind whose tests aim to show you how much you don't know. <laughs> you laugh because it's true. And then, then, there's, then there's like the truly helpful kind, whose tests aim to show you how much you've learned, how much you do know, right? And God is a gracious teacher. God is a gracious teacher. And so suffering, friends, it, it's not God's attempt to to flunk us. It's his method of, in the long run, building us up. Stay with me. 
Because suffering is a test that reveals the genuineness of our faith. Peter says there are two ways that it does that. Two ways. One that's long-term and one that's short-term. Okay? The long-term way is that, Peter says, after a, a life, after a lifetime of trials and, and difficulty and suffering of various kinds, we will see Christ face to face. And in that moment, and for all eternity, we will be able to say, whatever we went through, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it for Jesus. Jesus was worth it. And all the difficulty that we experienced along the way, all the bitter aspects of life in a broken world made our final union with Jesus in the end all the sweeter. All the sweeter, right? Peter says in verse 7, he says, The tested genuineness of our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the long term, okay? That's the long term. The short term way that God is building us up with the display of our genuineness is, is this, okay? Many of us have already experienced this a time or two, I think. But as we are walking day by day in our faith, we enter into trials that challenge us, don't we? Loss, loneliness, depression, betrayal, besetting sin, disease, physical pain, financial hardship, you name it. And as we're walking through it, we're still looking to Jesus, right? We're still looking to Jesus. And as grief-filled, hard, and discouraging as it is in those lowest moments, in those dark nights of the soul, we find that he never leaves us. Yeah. <laughs> that he never leaves us. And he never forsakes us, but he stands by us and he sustains us. And no matter how many difficulties we may suffer, Jesus just keeps coming through for us. He keeps being enough for us. And it's in those moments that what Peter says of the early church can be said of us Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And as we do that, God, through our sufferings, is putting the genuineness of our faith on display. And we are, in real time, in real time, we're obtaining 
the outcome of our faith in the progressive sanctification of our souls as we continue to rejoice in the fact that his grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. For in our weakness, he shows himself to be strong. Amen. Amen. So to sum it up, the overarching point of suffering is to prove that we as Christians We don't just rejoice in our new, born-again life in Christ when things are, are easy. But as God's children, we continue to rejoice in his goodness even when life, this side of eternity, gets difficult. I love how my kids are such a great illustration of this. You know, if you have kids, you know, kids never stop playing, do they? They, I mean, just watch, they never, they don't stop playing for anything. They're just that committed to having fun. It's impressive, really. You might be at a funeral and have to tell them to hush because they're being silly, right? Or you might, your car might be broken down, smoking on the side of the road, and they're entertaining themselves playing in the dirt, like, like they're unaware of the weight of the circumstances that they're in. This is what it should be like with Christians and their rejoicing. Right? Except they know the circumstances they're in are not good. But that does not stop them from rejoicing in light of the worthiness and the sufficiency of Christ. James, a little brother of Jesus, he sums this up way faster than I did. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And with that, we transition into the final movement of this passage, which You know, when I first read it, it was the most confusing one to me. It seems like Peter's making a really solid case to rejoice in our living hope, the resurrected Christ, regarding uh, our circumstance, regardless of our circumstances. But then he kind of takes a turn you might not expect, right? He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, uh, I'm just going to be straight up with you about how I felt when I first read this. My exact thoughts were something like, um, huh? (laughs) Anyone else who's really tried to read the Bible understands that? Amen? Sometimes you just read a section of Scripture and you're like, I have no idea why this is here. Glad I can be honest with you. And when that happens to me at this point, you know, it's it's usually not that I don't understand what is being said. It's that I don't understand how it's helpful to me. So particularly with this passage, when I was trying to figure out what to say, I wasn't particularly sure how a reference to the Old Testament prophets not knowing about Jesus would be a particularly encouraging uh, note to end this sermon on, not to mention the thing about angels, right? 
But as I sat with it, the Lord was gracious to this dummy, and he finally made it click for me. Actually, not only did it make sense, but I realized this is the perfect way to end this passage. It's the perfect way to end this passage. Peter's saying, rejoice that God made you alive in Christ and has given you a share in his kingdom. And even when you're walking through trials, don't stop rejoicing. Don't stop rejoicing because Jesus is enough for you and he's going to show himself to be worth it, right? And remember this part right here. Remember, the kind of rejoicing that you are able to do, church, is a kind of rejoicing that the greatest prophets of the Old Testament did not have the ability to do. They didn't have the ability to do. And that the angels even right now, cannot fully do. He's saying, think about this with me. I know it's been a lot, but think with me. As you read and study the Old Testament, what you'll eventually come to realize is that God was never unclear about his plan of redemption, was he? He was never unclear about his plan of redemption. He was giving little pieces and snippets of it from the, just the very beginning and by the time you get up to, you know, Abraham, and then you get to Exodus and the law and the wilderness wandering, followed by judges, to be sure, right? It starts to become really clear, doesn't it? Sin is our problem. Sin's our problem. The only appropriate answer seems to be a savior who can help God's people to live right by worshiping and obeying him like they were made to do. The only issue is all of our leaders from Genesis until now, even the really good ones, are sinners themselves. <laughs> the, prophets, the prophets had this figured out once they got past kings, and so they're all kind of allusions to Christ and the prophetic writing shadows of Christ, Right? Some of the most striking are in Isaiah. Some of the things that Isaiah predicts about Christ 700 years before the birth of Christ. It's incredible. How could he know that, right? But as much as they had figured out by the Holy Spirit, they they still didn't have the opportunity to actually know Jesus. (laughs) To hear his teachings to study his life, and then obviously to experience his his death and resurrection that were the final answer to humanity's sin problem and to receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. Peter's saying the prophets, well, the prophets knew a lot about salvation by God's grace, but the church is living in the greatest time to be alive with knowledge of redemption and intimate relational access to God that the prophets can only foretell and that angels cannot even fathom, right? You see, as it pertains to our knowledge of God's plan of redemption, in the Gospel of Luke, it says, turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. (laughs) He's talking about himself, right? 
He's talking about himself and how he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the singular way to be saved from sin and be reconciled back to God. He was the Savior that the Old Testament had been pointing to all along. But the prophets had been, they'd been trying to figure out, but they, they just couldn't quite do it. And in regards to the angels, at first, you know, this seems like, seems like an obscure addition to this text. But really what Peter is saying is that while angels certainly can and do worship Jesus and see his redemptive plan from a, a heavenly perspective that we can't see, right? We have the ability, Christians, we have the ability to enjoy something that the angels never could. Intimate relational access to God himself. I love how the author of Hebrews describes our access to Christ. He says it this way. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, okay, humanity, flesh and blood. He himself, that is Jesus. Jesus likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Get this part right here. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, again, us. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. I'm encouraged by that. Are you? <laughs> he's able to help those who are being tempted. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, he's been tempted like we are, yet without sin. Without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And being made perfect, he, that is Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus, having become the God-man in his incarnation, now shares with us a, a human form. And he did it not only so he could save us, but so that he could fully understand us and empathize with us so that now we, as his church, we have a kind of intimacy with God, where we can simply walk into his throne room at any time, Amen. any time with confidence. Amen. 
knowing that we will receive grace and help from him. I don't have this in my notes. Some of you are standing far off from God today, afraid to approach him. Let me just tell you, he wants you to come to him. Come to him under these pretenses right here. What Jesus has done for you. Enter his throne room with confidence. He wants to give you grace and mercy and the help that you need. No Old Testament prophet could have seen that coming and no angel can experience that kind of closeness that we have with Christ. And because of that, Peter closes out by telling us that the gospel, the great mercy of God by which we've been born again to a living hope is something that angels long to gaze at. They long to wrap their minds around it. For those who know a thing or two about the Old Testament tabernacle, if you don't, that's okay. I I, I suspect that this is why the construction of the ark, I I love this. This It's amazing that Peter says this, right? That angels long to look at the gospel applied to our lives. Okay, If you know about the ark of the covenant, God directed the top of the ark of the covenant in the most holy place. What did it have on it? The mercy seat, right? The mercy seat where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of lambs and bulls to make atonement for the people. And he said on both sides of that mercy seat, there should be what? Angels. Exodus 25, 20, it says the cherubim, those are angels, shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat, facing one another. Right, they're, they're facing one another over this mercy seat. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. They're staring at it, not looking away at anything else because that mercy seat was the foreshadowing representation of the intimate relational access that we now have with Christ. (laughs) By his blood, and then as much as they long to, the angels just can't quite fathom it. (laughs) It's so amazing. And amazing as this is, and why you may concede to the fact that we as the church are now living in the greatest moment of redemptive history, what does that mean practically for us? Like, what do we do with this information? I know you want to know that. We're all pragmatists, right? Like, tell me what to do now, preacher. You've said a lot. What do I do? If that's what you want, you may leave unhappy today. But every year our community group has a Super Bowl party, and I could care less who makes it to the Super Bowl, honestly. It's really just an opportunity to eat the good tailgate snacks that all the ladies in our group make. But I do like a good game where you don't really know who's going to win because it's fun to watch. If you've watched the, was it the Rams and the Bengals this year in February, it was a real nail-biter down to the last 
minute of the game. And if you're watching it, if you're at my house, you remember this. Everyone went, even me, I don't care about this, but even me, we, everyone went from eating snacks and cutting up, right, to silently standing around with their eyes glued to the TV. Because it actually looked like the underdog was going to win in the final minute of the game. We're watching. And Peter says, this is how the angels are looking at us. (laughs) Because they are so enthralled with how Jesus is about to help the underdogs win the game. And so my simple encouragement to you is this. In the next few weeks, Peter's going to shift from these big gospel themes into more practical directives, telling us how we can be actively involved in what the angels can only long to wrap their minds around. Christ himself has invited you, friend. Christ has invited you into an intimate, familial relationship with him where you get to be a part of the final moments of the game, so to speak, on the winning team as you prepare to take hold of your share of his eternal kingdom. We're all about to win it big here on Team Jesus. Do you know that? (laughs) Do you think about it like that? The angels do. The angels do. That's what this passage tells us. And they wish they could be in on it. Don't blow your opportunity to be a part of what God is doing in the final hour disengaged, scrolling your Instagram or something. (laughs) What a waste. This is the greatest time to be alive. Are you alive? (laughs) Are you alive? Have you been born again? If that's something you want to talk about, I'd love to talk with you about that after this. I know I yelled a lot, but I won't yell at you if you come talk to me. But if you have been born again, man, maybe what you do today is just, you just commit yourself today to really live like it. Live for Christ, really, if you've been born again. We'll talk more about what that looks like in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, I've said all I can say today. I'm amazed at your grace. God, your great mercy by which you caused me to be born again. Father, I, I needed this sermon today. This message was for me. God, I pray that there are men and women in this room who by the power of your spirit, not by my small intellect or 
using too many big words, but I pray that the people in this room, by your spirit, felt the same way today. That this passage of scripture is it's for them. God, you don't desire that, that anyone would perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of eternal life in your son, Jesus. You have given him freely to us. You've given us everything we need, and you invite us into the throne room. You tore the curtain from top to bottom so that we can walk in before you and receive all the mercy and all the grace and all the help that we could possibly need. The peace, the joy, the comfort, the strength to continue. God, you offer it all to us. And in the end, we're gonna win big because of what Jesus has done. Not because of us, but because of what Jesus has done. I pray that we would, with our spiritual eyes, see that the angels long to be a part of that and that we wouldn't waste it. We'd press into our relationship with you today and be part of what you're doing in redemptive history. We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.